Fieldwork acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which this podcast is produced. We would also like to pay respects to their elders past, present and future and extend our respect to all First Nations people. We've always performed habitually and involuntarily without a mind of our own, arguably, and we've always been augmented in some way. We fear the involuntary, we fear becoming automated, but yeah, we fear what we have always been and what we've already become. We've already become zombies and cyborgs. You're listening to Fieldwork, the podcast on contemporary Australian art. I'm your host, Drew Pettifer, and in Fieldwork, I bring together conversations with artists and experts discussing key themes of contemporary art practice. Today on Fieldwork, Bioethics with Stellark. Uh, my name is Stellark, and I'm a performance artist. Well, I've always been interested in in the kind of evolutionary architecture of the human body. Yeah, there's been this general interest in embodiment, agency, identity, and what constitute intelligence in both biological and and computational systems. Stellark is one of Australia's most celebrated performance artists. He works with an expanded concept of the body and explores its relationship with technology. He was first known for his body suspension pieces, where he had hooks through his skin, but throughout his career he's also used medical instruments, prosthetics, robotics, virtual reality, the internet and biotechnology to create intimate interfaces with the body. So I guess there was a kind of probing of the physiological, the psychological parameters of the body on the one hand, but having done that, there was a realisation of the inadequacy and and possibly the obsolescence of the body in the technological terrain that it now finds itself in. And so there was an interest in seeing how the body could be augmented, a kind of exploration of alternate anatomical architectures. Why be satisfied with, uh, you know, a body with a bipedal gait with two limbs that are manipulators, with only two eyes for stereoscopic vision, uh, with only two ears positioned on on the side of your head? What about performing with a an extra limb, an extra ear that's not for locally hearing what's happening, but becomes a remote listening device for people in other places? One key point that seems to pop up regularly in art around the question of bioethics seems to stem from a point in the late 1990s where stem cell research reached a point where there became these questions raised around the ethics of biotechnological developments. And one of the key issues that popped up around that time, which was reflected in art practice, was around the slippery slope argument. This idea that where do we end this point of potential genetic engineering now that we have the tools available to us. It doesn't seem to have eventuated, obviously. I mean, we're not genetically engineering humans. Yet. As yet. Yet. We may. I mean, we now actually have much better techniques than we had in the 1990s to do that, or we, we would have if, if we wished to. I'm Peter Singer. I'm a professor of bioethics at Princeton University and also a laureate professor at the University of Melbourne in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. So we have more precise methods of intervening in the genome and and altering things, uh, something called uh, CRISPR, which uh, is an acronym for a a long term that I won't go into, but it's more, you know, it's been likened to being given a pair of 
genetic uh, shears that you can cut the genome and insert things more easily than you can. It's possible that they're going to be harmful side effects if we do that. So it's you couldn't say that it's ready to be applied to humans as yet, but it certainly is possible that we'll be able to do this in a different way from what we could when this debate started. I have written a, a little about that. It's not been a, a major research area of mine, but but what I've written is mainly to warn against the idea that this should simply be left to the market. And perhaps that's because of my American perspective where so many things get left to the market. And since I've been teaching mainly in the United States for 20 years now, I'm concerned that uh, it's quite possible that if these genetic techniques become available, maybe, maybe for, for example, selecting embryos, which is something we can already do, but if we had more genetic knowledge to be able to select embryos on the basis of which ones would have higher intelligence, which ones would be more likely to be able to get into the elite universities in the United States, which many parents would like their children to get into. So we could already perhaps, you know, well, we can certainly already select embryos for identifiable genetic diseases. We can't yet identify genes that would help them get into elite universities, but it's not impossible that we'll be able to do that, not with 100% certainty, but with increasing probabilities. Well, the concerns are probably just about to be realised. <laughs> uh, I mean, of course, there's always a historical gap between, you know, the initial research and finally its application and, and ultimately finding out unintended consequences. And of course, genetic intervention creates social and, and cultural concerns. And especially now with CRISPR, that makes it possible to more accurately splice genes. You know, you can delete, replace and edit genes now uh, so much more easily using this technique of modified bacterial protein and an RNA that guides that to a specific DNA sequence. So a, a lot of this kind of genetic intervention is going to be facilitated. There's already apparently a group that's done experiments on, on human embryos using CRISPR. More mundanely, several years ago in the UK, the first 50-year frozen embryo was brought to bear as a healthy child. Now, what's interesting there is that we're desynchronizing reproductive processes from an individual's lifespan. So the frozen eggs of, of that person, the frozen sperm, could be of people who've already died. You might be born at the deathbed of your sibling, for example. So that's kind of intriguing, the idea that we're desynchronizing reproduction from individual lifespan. So do you believe then that the fact that the slippery slope hasn't kind of eventuated is largely due to scientific and technological limitations more so than ethical and perhaps policy ones. Is that fair to stay? I think that probably it's probably a combination. I think the scientists have hesitated to get further into this field because of ethical and policy concerns. But certainly the scientific obstacles are, are there too. And if they were overcome, then I would be surprised if it were not in use somewhere in the world. Well, I mean, just as our notion of the human construct is an unstable one, 
and uh, is the result of our social, cultural conditioning, our technological instruments and machines at this particular moment in our history. You know, so ethics, you know, is also unstable, uh, dynamic and ever-changing. The notion of the human, uh, I suspect, will be much more uh, different, you know, in a, in a hundred years' time, in a thousand years' time, than it is now because we're increasingly seeing bodies that are sustained by technological life support systems, paralyzed bodies that can operate, can perform both motor functions uh, via neural prosthetics, for example. So bodies will not be the nostalgic biological body that we see ourselves as. Bodies will be hybrid uh, human machine systems. Typically, your body that you are born with is not the body that you'll die with. And you'll die no longer biological deaths, but rather when your life support system is switched off. I should say that I perhaps define bioethics rather broadly, or you might also say I don't only do bioethics. So in the field of bioethics as narrowly defined, the most recent thing that I've done is about the definition of death. Uh, we changed uh, back in the 80s to a definition of death that includes brain death, the death of the brain. That's been challenged philosophically and in practice to some extent. That raises an interesting question as well around the socio-political implications of this whole field around bioethics and biotechnology. How do you think it might change us as humans in that kind of political context in particular? We're sort of in this age of circulating flesh. You know, we can take organs from one body and animate them in another body. So, you know, bodies now have, in a sense, been fractured and organs are being distributed and shared and commodified. But it's also a time of what I call fractal flesh and phantom flesh. In other words, bodies and bits of body spatially separated but electronically connected, generating recurring patterns of interactivity at varying scales. And increasingly now with haptic technologies, we'll be able to generate more potent physical presences of these remote bodies. So this idea of circulating flesh, of fractal flesh and phantom flesh, means that we're operating now beyond the boundaries of our skin, beyond the local space that we inhabit. So social and political influences, you know, will be adjusted, will alter. You can't simplistically contain an individual in one biological body anymore because that individual is distributing their agency, is outsourcing their senses. I suppose what one can say has been clearly discussed are questions of uh, where decisions, again, um, have in the past been made with very young children unable to express views. So people with ambiguous genitalia, for instance. In the past, it was pretty standard practice to have surgery so that the genitalia would be sort of more female, usually. It was the easier surgery to produce, and effectively to assign uh, a gender to that person. And some people who later learnt what had happened to them and why they are as they are objected to that and said that was a mutilation that should not have been done to them. And they should have been allowed to remain ambiguous.
I've always considered the body as an object, not as an object of desire, but rather an object that should be redesigned. The human body is wonderfully complex. Having said that, it malfunctions often, it fatigues easily, it's not very robust. Microorganisms that it can't see fatally invade the human body. It has to gasp and breathe air, gulp air continuously to stay alive. Its heartbeat has to beat millions of times in its lifespan for it to stay alive. It has a limited longevity of about now, I guess, 80 years in good health. It's a problem if you're already 72. <laughs> so, you know, do we, do we accept the, the biological status quo? Do we take a kind of rather poetic notion of life and death, the Heideggerian idea that life is authenticated by death? Or do we see the human body as a malfunctioning uh, operational system of limited uh, cortical capacity, of limited sensory perception, and do something about that? A slight change in, in questioning tack. I'm interested to hear some more of your research around human and animal relations in these kind of spaces as well. Obviously, a lot of the research that has been done in this space that I can think of, at least, has related to testing on animals, I think immediately of the mouse with the ear on its, going on its back and cloning of Dolly the sheep and the like. Well, unfortunately, animals have been regarded as essentially tools for research going back now to the 19th century when experimentation on animals was small in number, but was often quite cruel. In fact, even in the 18th century before we had anesthetics, there were experiments on living animals who were cut open fully conscious in order to basically see how they worked, look at the veins and the heart and all the rest of it. Now it's uh, perhaps, you know, we, we don't do experiments quite as cruel and painful as that typically, but we do, you know, maybe 100 million experiments on animals or 100 million animals are used, so more than that number of experiments worldwide each year. So it's quite a large number of animals and all kinds of things are done to them, some of which might perhaps help to find cures for major diseases, but many of them are not even intended to do that. Their basic research or perhaps they're testing products, household products for safety. So if some company produces a new food dye or food preservative and they can't put it on the market until they've fed it to large numbers of animals. So I think it's there's a real lack of basic consideration of the interests of the animals involved uh, that's manifested in the things that we're prepared to do to them in, in laboratories. We have to go beyond the human and evaluate life in a much more general sense, uh, in a much more considered sense. I mean, I, I've always only used this body as a convenient site of experimentation. I've never been involved in using other living things, uh, for example. But what's interesting from the robotics point of view is that there's been an increasing sort of genre of robotics that uh, does biomimicry, you know, that, that uh, is fascinated with how insects and animals perceive and how they locomote and manipulate in the world and then tries to translate these uh, in, into r robotic equivalents. So I think 
this approach to robotics at least indicates an appreciation of the complexity and the diversity of other operational and interactive systems in nature, you know, whether they're human, insect, animal, or now machines themselves. So we have to, though, be cognizant of the fact that, you know, insects and animals have been used for experiments and experiments with gene manipulation. We can remote control uh, an insect by embedding an 8-bit chip into its brain and electrically stimulating it. Uh, We can control the the direction that a moth flies by varying the speed of its wings, for example. So that's more troubling, the idea that you can mount a little webcam on the back of an insect and turn into a, a surveillance object. It does seem to be the case that, again, artists as part of a response to the social context are engaging with these issues more around animal rights, around bioethics, around biotechnology. I'm wondering if you had some thoughts about how you think the cultural sector engages with, reflects these kind of concerns as well. I think it's very difficult to to generalise about all of that. Even among artists, there are clearly very different things that are being done. So there are artists who, you know, you clearly know where they're coming from, and I think they're working in a way that can attract people's attention and awaken people to, to what's going on. And then there are others who perhaps, you know, are wanting to be sort of cutting edge and are doing things with animals that perhaps don't respect the animals. If you're just being polemical, people might say, well, it's good polemic, but is it good art? Um, And I'm not really going to venture any kind of judgment on that. But there is always that kind of question. The other question I have to say is, who are you really reaching with this? Some of the the art exhibitions have a, a very limited audience, perhaps of people who are already somewhat sympathetic to these views. And how does that compare with the reach of the 60 Minutes program showing the, the video of the sheep on the live export basically slowly dying of, of heat stress? Uh, so I think you'd have to say that the, the people who, who managed to film that uh, video, the, uh, was a whistleblower on the ship, I think who did that, um, has had a vastly larger effect than any artist that I'm aware of, no matter how sympathetic that artist might be for animals. Yeah, well, I think these are very, very different fields of activity. You know, the methodologies of art, science and and journalism, for example, are are, are so very different. And I think what becomes problematic is when we sort of confuse those practices. I guess what's disconcerting for me is, especially in this genre of sci-art or art and science or art being uh, under the paradigm of, of research, doing research. What's irritating, I think, for me is that it seems to be an institutional strategy to authenticate arts practice by calling it research. Art is not about accumulating information like the, the sciences or putting together factual ideas, say, with what a journalist does. You know, art is really about uh, generating contestable futures, you know, possibilities that can be experienced uh, by an audience that can be evaluated, possibly appropriated, but most often discarded. Uh, I think art is not about finding answers, but rather generating more questions. There are social and political implications for that. That's not to say that science is not creative. It is. But again, 
in, in a very different sense with different methodologies and with all sorts of other possibilities and constraints thrown in. I think Stellark's work operates very much for some people around art and scientific research kind of coming together to form a sort of third thing in some people's minds. There's a lot of discourse around the role of science in art and the role of art in what you know we might think of as quasi-science. My name's Simon Maidment. I'm the Senior Curator of Contemporary Art at the National Gallery of Victoria, and I undertook a PhD at Melbourne University looking at art and agency, and in particular, the role of art in social and political change. And if one thinks back to the very early times, and Stellark is saying right at the very beginning, there are two things that are going on at the same time that render the human body obsolete even in the 1970s. The technology has now gotten to a point where you know, it can store knowledge in such a great way, such a great fashion, that it is impossible for our own bodies, our own minds to know all the things that can be held in technology as, you know, computer files and, and whatever else. Simultaneously, we can measure things to such a great degree that the body can't feel the difference between those microns that are otherwise detectable by the technologies that we're using. So it's obsolete in terms of its senses and its capacity. And so here is a way to then you know, explore what obsolescence might mean in a kind of visual and experiential manner. So you all can see what the kind of otherwise abstract arguments about the future might be. And I think that's a really powerful approach and one I think that is slightly misunderstood often with Stellark's work. You know, if we think back to the very early responses or, or the first sort of decade of responses to Stellark's practice during the sort of mid-1970s and into the 1980s, where people started to slowly understand his, you know, endurance performances and his suspension performances, not as a quasi-religious undertaking and not as a masochistic shock value artist, but as someone testing the body in some ways in trying to induce other kinds of states and, in fact, trying to draw attention to the limits of the body, even through these quite, you know, what were seen as extreme acts of suspension and, 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 and pushing the boundaries. Really, people started to understand his work almost as a kind of manifestation of commentary on digital and emerging technologies and the effects they might have on the body and no more so than even subjectivity itself. And so in a way, his work is very grounded in this time in a kind of philosophy of science, if you like. And that's why a term like bioethics, I think, is a really key one today because our understandings, have we've come a long way in terms of how we understand and recognize and recognize very broadly in not specialist audiences, actually, but in every person, what the relationship of technology to ourselves is and that it is one that is not a one-way street like technology does affect us in terms of subjectivity but also in terms of physical biologies. So his work I think has remained true in terms of a methodology of working all the way through from the 1970s through to today and it uses today obviously quite 
complex technologies. So he's an artist who engages science and scientific technologies, but he engages them in this kind of continual pursuit to question the role, the authenticity and the limits and the autonomy of the body. So he's not necessarily conflating in a way the forefront of scientific development or technological development with art. He's using his body as a way to make concrete and visible, sometimes in quite symbolic ways, but often in quite prosaic ways, what the potential issues of science and technology might be on the body in this quite spectacular form. Marshall McLuhan had an interesting definition of technology as the external organs of the human body. (laughs) So we've evolved as biological bodies with soft internal organs, but now we need these additional organs, these technological organs that allow us to perceive, operate and calculate at much greater speeds over greater distances. I mean, we now navigate between nanoscales and virtual non-places. I mean, these are sort of abstract realms of operation that would not be possible without our instruments and machines. So the Ear on Arm project, it's not about simply replicating a facial structure and relocating it to the arm. The idea is to reinsert the small microphone that used to be in there, insert a chipset that will enable the ear to become a remote listening device for people in other places. The extra ear is not for me. I've got two good ears to hear with. The ear is a remote listening device for people in other places, a kind of internet organ (laughs) accessible to everyone. (laughs) Very democratic. Fieldwork is produced by Shannon Goodwin and me, Drew Pettifer, and supported by Bus Projects. Audio production, editing, and mixing by Beck Fari. Our theme music is by Martin King. Lachlan Sue is our graphic designer. Our intern is Jake Davies. Special thanks to Stellark, Peter Singer, and Simon Maidment. That's it for this episode of Fieldwork. For past episodes and information on how to subscribe, head to fieldworkpodcast.com.au. In our next episode, environmental activism with Raquel Ormella and Adam Bant. And there is a way, I think, within the Australian sort of framework of thinking about the environment is that people think the environment is somewhere else, that it's, it's not in the cities, it's not in their backyard, like literally their backyard. That's next time on Fieldwork.